0: Thank you for joining us this morning. You are dismissed. Tim's feeling younger every day. That's why I do small fonts to try to get the backseat Baptist up front, so uh, yeah. Now I use a different PowerPoint background every time, and I never find one that I like, so I I need to just stick with one. I just don't like to be boring, and so I use a different one every week uh, to try to spice it up a little bit. We have been studying the doctrine of man and sin. You cannot study man very far before we are introduced to the fall of man into sin in Genesis chapter 3. And in response and reaction to the fall, there are so many features tied in to the fall. None are exempt from a scriptural view, an absolute standard of right and wrong given by divine revelation from a holy God. We want to look at a couple of contemporary issues before we leave the doctrine of man and sin and, and, uh, and move on. These are a couple of topics which are known as being controversial in uh, our society and even in Christendom. Uh, they're controversial because scripture has not been studied well and upheld, and uh, so the the first of those that we want to start looking at today is uh, women's role as it relates to uh, uh, ministry, uh, biblical womanhood, biblical manhood, and the second one that we might get to next week. It depends on how far we get today. Uh, you know, every time. Uh, you prepare a lesson, you never know how far. It's an adventure to see how far you can uh, get in your study of Scripture. But the other one is the exclusiveness of the marital union in the face of sexual deviancy, uh, which is, has engulfed our society. As you think about women's role in life and ministry of the church, One of the most significant changes in human history occurred in the past 40 to, say, 50 years. It's the gender revolution, or as I put up here, the gender blender, not knowing which end is up. Or in the words of William Manchester, quote, the erasure of distinction between the sexes is not only the most striking issue of our time, it may be the most profound, the race- has ever confronted, unquote. Even among Bible-believing Christians, intense emotional controversy exists over what the Bible says about the roles of men and women. Two major sides to uh, this gender issue. There is what is called evangelical feminism, egalitarian view If it's good enough for him, it's good enough for gals. And the other view is complementarianism, that uh, God created man and then woman to be a helper. It's not one that places man in a superior role, equal in the sight of God, but different. And that's what we want to, to look at. As we've already studied in Genesis 3, man has fallen. Fallen man's grasp of the law of God is reduced to a shapeless ruin. Uh, th- that phrase comes from John Calvin. A shapeless ruin. Darkened in his understanding according to Ephesians 4.18 and the law of God being foolishness to him, First Corinthians 2.14 and he is incapable of being subject to it He can't obey the law of God, Romans 8, 7. And compounding the problem, he perverts ethical values. He calls that good which God says is evil and calling evil which God says is good. And I take that from Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah pronounces several woes upon the people of his day which are no different than the people of our day. Names change, faces change, but the human heart remains the same. And in the woes that Isaiah pronounces there in Isaiah 5, let me read for you just a few verses, verses 18 through 23. He says, "'Woe to those who drag iniquity "'with the cords of falsehood and sin.'" as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work, that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass, that we may know it. And here's those phrases that I'm referring to. Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who substitute darkness for light, and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drinks who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. You know, they they want to justify wickedness. That is fallen man without the intervening grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man left to himself. Fallen man, second bullet point here, fallen man is blinded and ensnared by the evil one who denies the gospel and who continually accuses even the forgiven and justified elect. Though Satan cannot possess a believer, he does influence, he does wreak all manner of havoc. He does. He he does still perpetuate his lies. You know. So unsaved unsaved man, it's bad enough uh, that he's he's blinded and and ensnared. And uh, he's enslaved to his passions. Uh, one verse I didn't write down there. If you wanted to jot down Titus three three. As as Paul is reflecting with Titus about his life before Christ, he says. We also once were foolish ourselves we were disobedient deceived and slave to various lusts and pleasures spending our life in malice and envy hateful hating one another what a, what a list he gives of us when we were unbelievers we were disobedient foolish deceived and enslaved a picture one that's not pretty but a picture of man and his fallenness. So with that as the foundation of what we've already looked at in the fall of Genesis 3, think with me through the chronology of the Genesis 3 event. Very first verse of, uh, of Genesis 3 is a question. You remember when the serpent came to Eve? And what was the question he posed of her? Huh? Has has God said? Has God said? So beginning with Eve in Eden, Satan has been enticing women to question God's word. Did God really say? Were his first words to Eve? Satan wanted her to question whether God was truthful or not. And, and and he moves, you notice how sly he was. He moves from uh, did God really say and, and questioning God's truthfulness to questioning God's goodness. You know look, the the the, the fruit, it's 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 appealing. You know, he, he, and then he outright lies telling her she wouldn't die to question God's goodness. That God's withholding something from you, woman. There's something better for you, but God doesn't want you to have it. And he still tells women God's word is not true and that God is withholding. And in this, in, in this deception affects many areas. So let's uh, re-examine the biblical concept of womanhood as it's established and developed in Scripture Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 somebody want to read that for us Genesis 1 27 all right so in in spite of people wanting to rip out the first few chapters of Genesis and their teaching and and, and oppose it, God created male and female in His image. They each bear the image of God uniquely, both of them. And notice that it was male and female. There is no uh, blending There's no confusion. There's no gray area. There's male and there is female. And both genders created in the image of God. You come one chapter later in Genesis 2 and verse 18. As the development of this theology continues... The Lord says it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. So in chapter 2, by divine inspiration, Moses recaps what he already said in the first chapter. That God did create man and then he created... So he's kind of given the chronology of it there. In in chapter 1 and verse 27, God created all of mankind in his image, male and female... And here in chapter 2, He created man first, then woman. And He created them both to have unique roles in marriage. Different roles in the church too that we'll discuss momentarily. Third, both are image bearers and equal in Christ. I meant to bold face the words image bearer and equal. Um, That is... The gist of what Paul is getting at in Galatians 3.28, a very abused, misquoted, out of context verse when it comes to this issue that we're discussing today. Galatians chapter 3, Paul is developing the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. That is the context. It's speaking of in that context that at the foot of the cross, the playing level, the, 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 the field is, is equal. That's why there is no more Jew or Gentile distinction. That is why there, why there is no man or female distinction. Because whether you are a man or whether you are a woman, whether you are a Gentile or whether you are a Jew, all who turn from their sin and embrace Christ can be saved and become a Christian can be justified, though they are a sinner, can be credited with the perfect righteousness of Christ through faith in His name. That's what Paul is teaching there in Galatians 3. But, as we think about the curse or the fall, resulting from the curse is a struggle with dissatisfaction about the roles. she desire her husband's role instead. And, and let me be quick to add here a footnote that men aren't guiltless here. Though the, uh, though the emphasis there is talking about uh woman being deceived and whatnot, Adam was right there at the moment that it all shook down. Men aren't guiltless. Many abuse their position and choose to lead harshly or become passive and not lead at all. So as we think through Scripture, what about the Old Testament and its view of women? I'd already pointed out that God's first word on the subject of men and women is that they were equally created in the image of God. Man or woman, neither has more of the image of God than the other. Neither received more of it The Bible begins with the equality of the sexes as it lays a foundation. Adam was created first, then Eve, for the purpose of being his helper. And though Eve would be equal with Adam, she was given a role and duty of submitting to him. That's what the word helper connotates. And lest you or I or anybody else think that, that, is a, that the word helper is a negative connotation, that very word helper is ascribed to the triune God Himself as the helper of Israel. If you wanted to jot down Deuteronomy 33.7 or Psalm 33.20, that speaks of God Himself being the helper of Israel, same term. But it still describes someone in service to another. Submission was part of the original design, not part of the fall. Notice that, the original design. Later on in the New Testament, the argument is going to go back to creation to establish role distinction, not back to the fall. It's going to be before the fall. the, The first books of the Bible establish a pattern of equality of the sexes yet the support role of the wife. And several of those verses I gave you in Exodus and, uh, and Numbers teach men and women, no distinction, uh, that uh, uh, whether you be husband or wife, whether you be man or woman. Notice the consequences of disobedience in Genesis 3, if you wanted to place your eyes on it. Genesis Three, we are told, verses 16 through 19, to the woman he said, I'll greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you'll bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband. That word desire we're going to come back to in just a second after I finish reading these verses. Desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. So so work, which was part of the creation account, not part of the fall, would now be laborious. It would now cause the sweat of his brow. It would now be toil. He'd have to deal with thorns and thistles, verse 18, that will grow. You'll eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall... So, So when I go out this spring and prepare my garden and sweating like a hog out there, I'll be reminded that, yeah, work was part of the original creation account that was good, but now the sweat and toil that comes from the work as a perpetual reminder of the fallenness of this world. So these are some some consequences here in the latter part of Genesis 3 of disobedience. Her desire to rule, and even man's oppressive rule. You notice her consequences. She'd have painful childbirth and tension in authority. That desire, Genesis 3.16, is also used in the next chapter, Genesis 4.7, to mean excessive control over, excessive control over. That was now her new desire, excessive control over. So the new desire on part of the woman to control her husband, and he would exert authority. So the history of mankind ever since Genesis 3 has been the ongoing struggle of woman seeking control and man seeking dominance, neither reflecting God's original plan. So we see some dreadful consequences. As we continue studying in the Old Testament, you see that women were very active in the religious life of Israel. Never in leadership, but very active Now, who do uh, those from an an, uh, egalitarian posture, who do they use as their poster child of leadership in the Old Testament? Who's one of the ladies? Deborah, thank you. Uh, Judges chapter 4. Deborah being the poster child for women's rights advocates, but she clearly is the exception and not the rule. No woman was in an ongoing prophetic ministry. No woman could be found as priest. No queen ever ruled Israel. No woman ever wrote an Old Testament or New Testament book. This slide is on the Old Testament. but uh, uh, In fact, Isaiah 3 and verse 12 indicates that God allowed women to rule as part of His judgment on that sinning nation. So we see that the Old Testament maintains equality but distinction. Equality but distinction. Is the New Testament any different? How about Jesus and his relation to women? You look at the culture and society of the days in which Jesus in the flesh walked the earth, and he was countercultural. Contrary to culture, Jesus showed love and respect. Think about society in that day. Greek, Roman, and Jewish culture viewed women almost on the the level of possessions. Jewish rabbis wouldn't teach women. And the Talmud said that it was better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. I mean, it's just, just atrocious. It's wicked. It's violent. It doesn't maintain beauty and distinction that the Scriptures do. So Jesus came to earth, and going counter to His culture, you look at uh, how women were included in His audiences and in His illustrations and the images familiar to them. I gave you several verses there in Matthew 13, in Matthew 22, Matthew 24, Luke 15. He would even specifically apply His teaching... To women. He would take special time to evangelize women. How about, how about John 4, the Samaritan woman at the well? He'd even point out to, to Martha, you know, uh, Martha thought she was doing the right thing and that Jesus was going to stick it to Mary, Right? He'd point out to Martha the priority of learning spiritual truth over the the house chores or responsibilities or dare we say, women's work. What people would falsely say. You know? So Jesus made sure that Martha would understand high calling and distinction. You know, He'd he'd touch them to heal. When you study the culture of the day, Women were not allowed to count change. You, you, you wouldn't count change into a woman's hand for fear of physical contact. And yet, when Jesus would heal, He'd touch them. Not in seductive ways like trashy society does, but He'd touch them to heal them. He'd allow them as traveling companions. he had appeared to them after the resurrection. You look at the resurrection accounts. Men in Jesus' day normally didn't count change into their hands for fear of physical contact, yet Jesus would touch to heal. He'd, he'd allow them to touch Him, Luke 13.10, Mark 5.25. Jot down Luke 8, 1-3 as He'd allow them as uh, traveling companions. So Jesus, in essence, raised their station in life. He'd show compassion and respect such that they hadn't known. And all at the same time, never put them in a place of leadership over men. Never. As we continue in the New Testament, not only do the Gospels teach this, but what about the epistles? These little epistles in the New Testament written to the local New Testament church they still maintain that those parallel principles of equality and submission. Equality and submission. If there is a boss, there is also a worker. Right? And so instructions are given in slave-master relationships. If you're going to be the boss, you better be a godly boss. If you're going to be the servant, you better be a godly servant. You know, this, this equality and submission we can even take back to the triune God, and you look at the role distinction between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The fa- to the Father is attributed the formulation of Redemption's plan: him who sent the Son to pay an atonement for sin in full, and the spirit of God to apply that to individual sinners' lives. All equal members of the Trinity, but role distinction. I, I've mentioned uh, how, how horrendously Galatians 3.28 has been taken out of context. That simply points to equality, indicating that the way of salvation is the same for both men and women and are members of equal standing in the body of Christ. No hierarchy when it comes to our salvation. It, but we cannot use Scripture against itself. That is a false argument. Scripture does not contradict itself. And so Galatians 3:28 does not eradicate all the differences in responsibilities, nor does it cover every aspect of God's design for male and female relationships. So don't ever use it to contradict other passages that make clear distinctions between what God desires for women and for men. No verse of Scripture can you teach an entire theology from. No verse speaks on its own, but all speaks in harmony with the other verses of Holy Scripture. Notice the second bullet point there. Though marriage involves mutual love and submission. That's Ephesians Uh, 5.21. Some people are so quick to go to, when they want to talk about uh, uh, women's role in the home, uh, all those verses in Ephesians 5. For woman, you're supposed to submit to your husband, right? Well, previous to God's instructions through Paul to the husband and previous to his instructions to the women, he speaks to everyone in the body of Christ. In Ephesians 5.21, be reminded that uh, we are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, you are exhorted, you are encouraged, you are commanded to practice submission to your fellow brother and sister in Christ, deferring to one another, submitting to one another out of the fear of God before he ever gets into role distinctions in the home. So though marriage involves mutual love and mutual submission, Scripture also expressly teaches the wife's submission. And then we can go to those verses of Ephesians 5.22 and Colossians 3.18 and Titus 2.5 and 1 Peter 3.1 on the issue of Submission. Husbands have been given the primary responsibility for leadership of, of their children. And wives and mothers are to be workers in the home, given their family priority. As you continue studying the epistles, what about the church? Women in the church have had a vital role from the very beginning, from the very get-go. Study the narrative of the book of Acts that Dr. Luke gives us. Chapter after chapter, verse after verse, and I gave you several there, showing the vital role of women in ministry. If you were to take out, if there was a, a female rapture of the church, you take the women out, how, how the church would slump, because where do you often have people serving? we got women keeping the cogs going. But never in one of leadership. And I know you've been wondering if I'm ever going to get there, so take your Bibles and turn to First Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. If Ephesians 5 is the Mount Everest of Christian marriage, and it is, then 1 Timothy 2 is the Mount Everest of gender roles in the local church family. If 1 Timothy 2 is to the local church family what Ephesians 5 is to the individual family, 1 Timothy 2 is the clearest and most prominent passage that restricts women from certain teaching and leading ministries. First, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 9. And I'm going to go back to the context in just a moment. So let's read the verses and then think with me through this text. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Notice the contrast in verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Then notice Paul's argument where he goes to develop. He says in verse 13, for it was Adam, he goes back to Genesis, the creation account. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. If we spent the time reading the whole chapter, those first seven verses or eight verses of 1 Timothy 2 talks about men's prayers. After stating what is done regarding prayer in verses one through seven, Paul exhorts men about prayer, which is a part of the larger issue of how a man ought to conduct himself in the household of God. The pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, are uh, written to teach us what the church is and how it operates. His thesis statement, his propositional statement, is how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And part of the conduct in the household of God is that priority of prayer. Paul wants men to pray, according to uh, verse eight. How do you conduct yourself in the household of God? Pray in every place. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Holy hands stand in contrast to unclean hands, which means sinful, sinful hearts that are unacceptable to God. Paul's point is not the posture of our appendages, whether we raise hands or don't raise hands when we're singing and praying. The emphasis is on the heart of the praying man. It's to be morally pure. Holiness and prayer go hand in hand. You cannot deny with your lips your life. To be more specific, men are warned against praying while harboring an angry disposition towards one another. How do you conduct yourself in the household of God? Make sure your prayers are from the posture of a pure heart. Number two in chapter two is he addresses uh, women's dress. He urges them to dress modestly, motivated by attitudes of Christian propriety and and self-restraint. Here's how she's to conduct herself in the household of God. We're not talking about uh, um, she shouldn't dress up at all and take care. You know, if the barn door, is, uh, one person said, if the barn door needs painting, then paint it. You know, if she needs to fix herself up, then fine. You know, I'm glad, you, I'm glad each one of us uh, looked at the mirror and uh, some of us men shaved and some ladies had to take care of the rat's nest and whatnot. But his, his warning is against expensive, extravagant clothing at the expense of not tending to her heart. As he addressed the man's heart, so he addresses the woman's heart. Paul's not prohibiting women from wearing clothes, jewelry, or braided hair. He's talking about their priority. You know, some appropriate words from... One Bible teacher said, these words are desperately needed in our culture for materialism and sexual seductiveness with respect to adornment still plague us. Thank you, Dr. Schreiner, for those words of caution from Paul to Timothy that needed to be heeded. John Stott, in using contemporary image remarks, the church should be a veritable beauty parlor Because it encourages its women members to adorn themselves with good deeds. Women need to remember that if if nature has made them plain, grace can make them beautiful. And if nature has made them beautiful, good deeds can add to their beauty." So he talks about men's prayers. He talks about women's dress. And then thirdly, he talks about women's submission. Now, several years before this text, Paul had already written to the church at Ephesus. And he instructed wives to submit to their husbands. But here he's instructing women how they ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. Women, he says, whether married or single, are to learn with a submissive spirit. They're not to be teachers or elders of the congregation And he appeals to the original creation account. It's assumed that all Christian women are going to learn the doctrines of, of the faith. But how she learns in public and congregational gatherings, the point that he's at here. Paul uses two descriptive phrases there. She is to... Receive teaching quietly and with entire submissiveness. That word submissiveness, hypotagi, is the noun of the verb submit, hypotasso, that we find in Ephesians 5. The very verb describing the role relationships between husbands and wives. As a woman submits herself in the church family in the same way that she submits herself in marriage she's not to take up the the leadership of the church or teach the church she's to support and actively help the men in their leadership role that doesn't mean that there aren't teaching opportunities there's some very gifted women teachers out there but she is not to exercise teaching authority over a man So Paul doesn't prohibit women from teaching absolutely. So much more that we could say. Paul gives no suggestion of women elders in the passage or elder qualifications at all. And the reason why we we wanted to emphasize Scripture's teaching on this is that lots of people don't believe it. As you study through Scripture. I was looking through a, uh, an article on emerging trends that stated nearly 70% of people polled by Gallup said that they disagree with the statement, quote, a wife should graciously submit to the servant leadership of her husband. 70%. When the question included the phrase statement taken from the Bible, the number of disagreement fell to 60%. Only 60% disbelieved it from that point on. So let's make sure that uh, we go to Scripture and we, we recognize that there are responsibilities given. There are, uh, is clear Equality at the cross, but distinction in roles. Let's pray. Father, much more that could be said as a consequence of of the fall, and we realize that we need to be able to think clearly and think biblically about the issues of life, because we live after Genesis 3. We live in a post-fall world, one in which... Not only are women going to be tempted to desire the authority over her husband and other men in the assembly, but there's also going to be a lack of servant leadership by men. Either those who want to be authoritarian and to demand their authority, or those that would be passive in their leadership and let others lead. Help us to search and submit to your revelation of your purpose and plan for role distinction. We'll give you all the praise in Christ's name. Amen.